You are listening to a podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate. Good morning, West Hill. Interesting to see so much orange. For those of you who may be going, what's going on with all the orange? Um, as part of our theme today uh, of exploring uh, the Indigenous communities and the impact of residential schools, uh, the impact of uh, the injustices that have been done to the Indigenous people, uh, Orange is the representation, the support of those who uh, were lost, survived, or impacted by the um, residential school system. So, welcome. We wish to acknowledge that we are on the territory of the Mississaugas of the New Credit First Nations lands, which were lands that were previously occupied by the Seneca and Huron-Wendat First Nations. The, um, the, the climate walk and the, and the walk yesterday, Greta went down on Church Street, I think with another almost eight, 800 to 1,000 people to stand for freedom while other groups were, were demanding a freedom of expression. And, and I thought, I'm being very personal here, I, I, I used to belong to a group of people who were against many things because a book told them that it was wrong, a book they believed was absolute and universal in its application. But I never, would, I never belonged to any group that would have mongered hate or insult. Um, so that there's, there's all sorts of Christian responses to these issues. Some of them are violent and some of them are not, but that's the same in the secular world as well. And the more I learn, the more I, I realize... I didn't know anything about the indigenous issues before I came to West Hill. I knew the words. I did not know the issues. I did not know the issues of the, of the LGBT community like I do now. And, and I just had three slides to show you. The first one is about that we go farther. We go farther. And the second one is we dig deeper into issues that we didn't see before. We just saw on the surface and the next slide is that we connect more broadly with people that are different from us to do the things that matter in the world. And I'm just going to introduce the sharing song, and I'm going to ask them to just scroll those slides slowly to go farther, to dig deeper, and to connect more broadly is, is what, what I love that we do, and it's changed my life 
all the time and, and hopefully ours together. The first reading. In Seven Fallen Feathers, Tanya Talaga delves into the lives of seven indigenous students who died while attending high school in Thunder Bay over the first 11 years of this century. With a narrative voice encompassing lyrical creation myth, razor-sharp reporting, and a searing critique of Canada's ongoing colonial legacy, Tagla binds these tragedies into a compelling tapestry. This vivid, wrenching book shatters the air of abstraction that so often permeates news of the injustices Indigenous communities face every day. It is impossible to read Seven Fallen Feathers and not care about the lives lost, the families thrust into purgatory, while the rest of society looks away. The second reading. 58% of young adults living on a reserve in Canada have not completed high school according to the 2011 National Household Survey Census. And that's an increase from the 2006 census. How did this come about? The root cause of today's Aboriginal education issues began with the passing of the British National, sorry, the British North American Act in 1867. Prior to that, the relationships between the federal government and the Aboriginal peoples had been on a nation-to-nations basis. With the passing of the BNA, the relationship shifted significantly to the Aboriginal peoples becoming wards of the Crown, and federal government was given authority to make the laws about Indians and lands that Indians and reserved for Indians, thereby marking the beginning of the dark era of enforced cultural assimilation. In 1884, Indian agents, under the direction of the Indian Act, mandated, and later the RCMP, began to forcibly remove children from their families and placing them in residential schools. The, quote, logic behind removal of over 150,000 children during this era, that la- uh, with the last school closing in 1996, was that it was the best route to assimilation because it, quote, took the Indian from the reserve, kept him in a constant circle of civilization, assured attendance, removal from the retarding influence of his parents. In order for Aboriginal people to be successfully assimilated into the Euro-Canadian society, their cultures, languages, and traditions had to be taken away. Indian residential schools provided, at most, a rudimentary education. The majority of the learning was focused on religious indoctrination and manual labor skills. The children who survived faced a harsh and lonely future. Many had been sexually and emotionally abused. They could not return to their traditional lives because they had lost their language and traditions, and they did not have any adequate education so that they were hampered in their ability to succeed socially or economically. It is well documented that it takes constant home support for a child to stay the course and graduate from high school. But what if the home is made up of adults who are direct and or intergenerational survivors of the residential school system? 
Even if they did graduate, it was often not with this great standard of education. This means they are less able to help their children with homework assignments, especially in the tougher subjects, and they may be less supportive in terms of encouraging their children to graduate. The effects of the Indian residential school system are intergenerational, comprehensive, deep, and ongoing. The attempted assimilation process, which directly impacted many generations, not only underscored the relationship between Aboriginal peoples and the government, the churches, and the RCMP, but it implanted a deep distrust of schools, teachers, and administrators. The next time you hear about Aboriginal education issues, understanding the issues will help answer questions why they may not have a grade 12 education, why they may not have a job-ready background, may not have a driver's license, and may not be interested in attaining any of the above. Offered as wisdom for the journey. Um, yeah, come forward, Dennis. Uh, Dennis, of course, uh, curates our fifth Sunday of the month uh, TED Talks. Uh, we have left him, I don't even know if we have enough time to watch the whole film, so we're going to watch the whole thing. But I'm wondering if you want to give the questions out, um, mention the questions so people can think of them while they're watching and maybe have the conversation over coffee? No. Okay, thanks, Ben. You're going to have to live through it. I'm going to take the time. <laughs> uh, I can jump to the, the questions that I have. And uh, <clears throat> I guess the first one, <clears throat> excuse me, <clears throat> what do you see as the priorities for action by our governments? Second question, have any of you any heard any election promises that will move this <clears throat> scale along with Indigenous people? Any financial bribes uh, out there uh, at uh, election time? I, I haven't heard any, none at all. <clears throat> the birth rate of Indigenous children being four times that of the national average. Is this intentional or lack of education and poverty? Birth rates internationally are declining due to better education and a movement away from poverty. So those are the questions you want to think about. Let me start off <clears throat> with the first slide, please. Okay. <clears throat> the Indian Act was uh, put in place back in 1876, 143 years ago. It did not and still does not treat indigenous people fairly. It allows the government to control more aspects of Aboriginal life, including Indian status, land, resources, wills, education, band administration, and much more. The Indian Act is still a real and serious barrier to reconciliation. Next slide. <clears throat> Remote reservations. <clears throat> I'm sorry. <coughs> I need a drink. <clears throat> Just water. <laughs> <clears throat> Maybe something else would help better. Uh, remote reservations are isolated, poor accommodation, and certainly inadequate services. 
there's a lack of jobs that pay enough to maintain a reasonable way of life. Substance abuse to ease burdens of the way things they have to live in. Uh, inadequate schools and lack of qualified teachers, high cost of proper food, clothing, heat, and light. All of those things are real major issues to these people. Next slide. Racism and discrimination. The murder of indigenous women. High suicide rates of youth. Impact on employment and income. Widespread deep discrimination and racism right across Canada. I'd like to share with you a post from Facebook that I listened, I read, I didn't listen to uh, last month. Everyone has racial tendencies. Anyone who denies being a racist isn't dealing with it. Would you think that the color of my skin has provided me with white privilege across Canada because I can assure you that I have been accused of trying to steal. I've been robbed while in extreme state of vulnerability. I've had eggs thrown at me. I've been called racial slurs meant directed towards indigenous peoples, told to go back to the reserve, judged in my workplace, denied service in shops, and on public transit, constantly asked what my background is, told my real ID was a fake. Many who have heard my stories are in denial. They tell me that my lived experiences are not real. Northwestern Ontario is equally as bad. It is this, if this is all happening to me, can you even imagine and fathom how true indigenous peoples <coughs> rooted in the <coughs> in, excuse me rooted by the history of this land are treated by our inexcusable judgments fairness <coughs> families are are afraid to send their children to high school in thunder bay it is constantly heartbreaking to the witness the lack of infrastructure and societal support that keeps putting this culture into despair. Despair because we cannot wrap ourselves around what lack of support we as a country provide and can truly impact what everyday lives. We need to educate ourselves and do much better. Is signed by Jessica Kamke, and Jessica is our granddaughter. <clears throat> Next slide. <clears throat> education may well be the key to a better future for Indigenous people. Indigenous education is not needed to be fully fund. Indigenous education is not is but needs to be fully funded, if not overfunded initially, at all levels of education by both the federal and provincial governments. To deal with the racism, discrimination, all Canadian school children and need training in racism and discrimination. We need to start with this as soon as we can because 
It's so embedded in our society. Our TED Talk this morning is by Gabriel Scrimshaw. Gabriel Scrimshaw is a young professional whose passion is to create social impact. Born and raised in northern Saskatchewan, Gabriel is a proud member of the Hatchet Lake First Nation. Gabriel has studied international business and policy in Australasia, Asia, the Americas, and Europe, and became the youngest associate accepted into one of Canada's most competitive postgraduate finance programs. Most recently, Gabriel also started a national not-for-profit for Aboriginal professionals and was named the 2013 First Nation Youth Achiever of Indenture. Her TED Talk <coughs> title is, <coughs> sorry, A Brighter Future Through Indigenous Prosperity. She talks to the need and challenge of helping our Indigenous youth contribute to our economic growth. So, Peter, if you can turn on the TED Talk, <coughs> I will abandon my poor voice. Thank you. And I also want to thank you for showing that TED Talks on Pine Ridge and on Wounded Knee. I go down there every year on a motorcycle ride called the Wounded Knee Memorial Motorcycle Ride. 100 intertribal riders, even even white guys come along, which is good because the story of Wounded Knee. An elder once told me that the strength of who we are as Indigenous people comes from the fact that we speak from the heart, and that for thousands of years we've passed down our traditional knowledge, history, and culture. So in that spirit, today I would like to start by sharing a very personal story with you. March 21st, 2006 was a day a lot of things changed in my life, and that was the day my life really started, because that was the day my nephew Ethan was born. And what I remember so vividly about that day was sitting there in the hospital, holding Ethan for the very first time and being so overwhelmed with this kind of love like I had never felt before in my life. You know, it was the kind of love where I knew I would do anything to make his life better. In that moment, I also realized that although he was born only hours before, that because of who he was, being an indigenous person, that he would have to face some very daunting circumstances, not unlike the ones I had had to face growing up. 
if we're going to have a moment of honesty here, statistically speaking, I'm not supposed to be on this stage. Growing up, I didn't actually realize that being an indigenous person was a difficult experience. For me, my childhood was filled with memories of days spent on the lake fishing with my dad, in the bush learning about wildlife, eating smoked moose meat. And in the summertime, I even got to fall asleep listening to that sacred beat of the powwow drum. As the youngest of three daughters in a single-parent household, I won't deny that we did face many hardships as a family, um, ranging from substance abuse to suicide. Times in my life, like at the age of 12, and because of some family challenges, I was essentially left physically and emotionally alone. Or at the age of 14, the first time in my life a thought of a world left better without me crossed my mind. I didn't realize that most Canadians didn't face these kinds of challenges on a consistent basis. At the age of 15, a small but impactful course correction happened in my life, and it was a moment by chance and completely out of my control. A friend of a teacher decided to swing by and teach my class um, about some development projects that he'd done in other countries, and this really piqued my interest. So after his presentation, uh, I went up to him and we chatted, and he became the first person in my life, in this really raw heart-to-heart moment, that told me that he believed in me and that I was an amazing young woman. And this came at a time in my life when I really needed to hear those words. And this planted a small seed inside of me, a small seed that eventually grew into me working through a lot of insecurity and taking a number of leaps of faith, eventually becoming the first person in my family um, to earn a post-secondary education and leave my small community in northern Canada. Um, And like most university students, during this time is when I also started to travel, and one country quickly turned into 20. And some of my fondest memories were of uh, working with indigenous groups on many of the world's different continents and learning about their cultures, their rich cultures. And through these experiences, I realized, sadly, that in many other countries, indigenous people weren't really thought of as an integral part of their nation's history. Instead, I found, more often than not, they were labeled as a development problem and kind of swept under the rug as something to be dealt with. So this really sparked a curiosity in me to come back to Canada and learn about my own community in a more focused yet holistic way. And what I learned was, as I was going through the research, that the statistics really mirrored my childhood. You said I'd always grown up knowing about residential school systems. In fact, I actually grew up just down the street from one. But I did not fully realize the profound legacy that years of abuse and attempted cultural assimilation had left on my people. And so when I read things like, 40% of indigenous people live in poverty, I pictured the face of my neighbor waiting in line to cash his welfare check. Or when I read that we can be up to eight times more likely to commit suicide. I pictured the face of my family member that took her own life. Depending on where we live, we can be more likely to drop out of high school than finish it. Our unemployment rates are three times as high. We've all heard this story before. And through this, I realized that Canada really wasn't much better than the rest of the world in terms of our treatment of Indigenous people. And I really couldn't reconcile this idea of how we think of ourselves as Canadians, myself included. We are a country so proud to wear that flag on our hearts. With the issues faced by more than a million people, men, women, and children, in our own backyard. 
it's not something we like to talk about. In the fall of 2010, through another leap of faith, I moved from my small community in northern Canada straight across the country uh, to Toronto. Now, being this small-town girl in the big, bad city, I did what most young single girls do, or at least what I thought they were supposed to do, and I signed up for Latin dancing classes. (laughs) Yeah. Now... After one of my classes, one of my classmates and I, we went out for a bubble tea, and even that was such a big city experience for me. And as we were chatting, uh, he asked me where I was from, and through that it came up that I'm First Nations. So this guy, who was born and bred in Toronto, was brave enough to tell me that I was the first Indigenous person that he had ever met. And this floored me, because in Canada today, we have 1.4 million people who are Indigenous. And keeping in mind that I grew up in a primarily indigenous community, and this was the first time in my life that I'd ever heard anyone say that. So I went on to tell him about my Dene heritage. I told him about the broader Aboriginal community. I said, even when we say that word Aboriginal, it encompasses First Nations, Métis, Inuit peoples, over 50 different linguistic groups. As I was sitting there sipping on my bubble tea, I remember telling him how our population is growing at roughly four times the rate of the non-indigenous population. More than half of us live in cities, and in fact, the largest urban Aboriginal population in Canada is here in Toronto. And that nearly half of our population is under the age of 24. So he's sitting there across from me, and he kind of leans in, and with this perplexed look on his face, he says, Gabrielle, how come I haven't learned any of this before? And that's when I realized, no matter how much work I do in the Indigenous community, It really wouldn't matter until we all started to talk about it. I'm here to tell you today that there has never been a better time for us to have this conversation than right now. Because as Canada's fastest growing demographic that skews very young, we have this population tsunami that's coming and it's about to hit our country. In the next decade, we have enough Indigenous youth coming of working age that they could fill up all the federal public sector jobs nearly two times over. So with 400,000 Indigenous youth set to become your customers, your workforce, your neighbors, we need to start having the discussions and making small but impactful decisions that will have real economic benefit. The timing, quite simply, has never been better. And since this moment of realization, I've really made it my life's mission to be a catalyst for these kinds of conversations and plant these small seeds of change in the circles I've been so fortunate to work in. I mean, I've sat on advisory boards, boards of directors, I've worked with the media, and I even co-founded an Indigenous professional network that was the first of its kind in Canada. And through all of this work, I've been so fortunate to work with a number of amazing and resilient Indigenous leaders across this country. I mean, Indigenous people who are partners at the largest accounting firms, chiefs of economically sustainable communities, lawyers for the UN. And through all of this work, I'm starting to see how the tides are starting to shift in our community. And this is why I think it's such an exciting time to be an Indigenous person in our country. Because as our education rates start to rise, and our unemployment rate starts to decrease, this will have a significant effect on Canada's bottom line. The estimated cumulative benefit for increased Indigenous well-being, and this includes closing that skills and education gap, is an estimated $500 billion over a 25-year period. That's billion with a B. Let's just reflect on that number of zeros for a second. $500 
That's enough money to put every post-secondary student through post-secondary education in Canada for the next 13 years. That's enough money to wipe out nearly half of our government debt. So clearly, there's a large opportunity cost for us to do nothing, for us to keep the status quo. But the good news is, this disparity we see in Canada, that's an addressable cost. And here's where I start to have hope. Because the way I see it, as a country, we have this amazing opportunity in front of us on the table. But it's not going to start advancing until we talk about it around that table. Whether at home, when you're eating dinner with your families, or at work in our boardrooms. Now, the issues I'm talking about are complex. They are going to require advancement in our policy, in our programs, in our private sector relationships, in the education we provide Indigenous, and just as importantly, non-Indigenous people. There is no silver bullet. By the year 2026, the 400,000 Indigenous youth I mentioned will all be of working age. And why is this critical? Because this means today, right now, we are at this sweet spot of time where we can live by the values we hold so dear as Canadians and be a country, truly, where every child has an equal opportunity to succeed. The year 2026 is also special to me for another reason. And that's the year Ethan will celebrate his 20th birthday and is about to start his adult life. For me, that's my end game. I never want him to face the things I faced growing up. I want him to feel loved, to believe he can be anything he wants to be, or do anything he wants to do. And just as importantly, wake up every single day and be proud of who he is as an Indigenous person. My vision for Ethan's lifetime is something I believe is well within our reach. It's up to you and I to have the tough conversations and the courage to ask questions about why this is the Canada we live in and how can we do better. I really believe we write our history as a country every single day through the choices we make, through the things we say, and just as importantly, through the things we don't say. I want to leave you with a story that an elder once told me. On a sunny winter afternoon, this elder was walking through the bush in the snow with his son, who was about four years old, and he was teaching him about traditional medicines. And as they were trudging through this deep snow, his son slowly started to follow behind him. And as they were walking, his son said, Dad, it's a lot easier for me to step where you've stepped. Each day, every one of us is carving a path. I stand before you, a young woman, who's not supposed to be on this stage. Ten years ago, a stranger told a young indigenous girl that he believed in her. And through a hundred other choices, a hundred other footprints, which were not my own, I am here. Thank you. So, how do we deal with the issue of making these people truly Canadians and 
and feeling that they have a place in our society. Anybody, any suggestions? We have struggled through many, many governments, and none of them have succeeded so far. So it's a, it's a very major problem. Yes? Well, there's no question. Education, I think, is the key to a long-term process that will <clears throat> make the problems uh, much less than they are today. One thing that occurred to me, uh, you know, there's lots of controversy out there right now <clears throat> about the uh, carbon tax. And uh, not everybody's happy about it, but, uh, you know, it's going to happen. I wonder if we took all the revenue from the carbon tax and used it to provide proper education facility for uh, these people, proper medical condition, substance abuse treatment, and so on. Anyway, an idea. Yes. George? I didn't get that. The Ontario tax on gas is 22 cents a liter. Yes. And they're whining about 4 cents. Yes, Ruth. We contacted our local MP and set up a meeting with him and I think there was about 12 or more of us that went in and sat with him and he was just flabbergasted and he told us, you know, and he'd been an MP for a couple of years or so by that time, no one else had ever, ever, ever raised the issue of well, Indigenous issues with him at all. He was just floored. That man now, this is, he's um, running again for Parliament, Gary Hernandez Angry. He has worked hard. He's now on the, um, the committee, the Indigenous Committee in the, in the federal government. So he's, he really listened to us and he speaks up on our behalf. But, you know, our group also contacted John McKay, the Liberal MP in the next riding over, and he said, he, nobody ever cares about this, and he wasn't interested in meeting with us. So, I guess what I'm trying to say is, the way, the, the only way you're ever going to make a difference is if people get 
together and they go and they talk to their MPs and tell them that they care. Because until the MPs believe that it's an issue in their constituents, they're not going to bother with there's too many other things on the table. So we have to speak up. Thank you. Now you can get me out. Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Dennis. Um, brilliant. That was a brilliant presentation. So thank you for that. And I'm hoping that in the conversation that takes place, uh, no, not the conversation that takes place in the coffee hour, but the conversations that take place in your lives beyond this place might include some of that information that Gabrielle shared there um, and that Dennis shares and that Ruth has shared for so many years. Uh, because I didn't know until Ruth began to uh, share information about that gap in education funding and the implications of that. And so it's a very, very important conversations to have with your neighbors. So I invite you to do that. And now I'm just going to do it. Oh, okay. It is such a complex world outside our doors. If you think about the, the circles of uh, the loops of information and interest and concern that make up the air out there, it is filled, it is filled with stories that we may never hear. Uh, but they weigh on someone's heart and they affect someone's community. And I invite someone's response. So of those of which you are aware, into the conversations that you have with others, bring, bring those bits and pieces together. Help lay that circle out in front of someone else that they may too come to see the world differently, as do you. And may we ever have the courage to share that deeply with one another in this place so that we might do it fervently and beautifully beyond going peace. podcast from West Hill United Church located in Scarborough, Ontario, Canada. These podcasts are made possible by the generous support of our listeners, volunteers, and members of our community. To donate, go to our website, www.westhill.net, and click on the Canada Helps button, or go to www.westhill.net forward slash donate.